This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 15. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right, now, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 15, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Hey, how's this uh, once-a-week thing working out for you? Well, I tell you, it's a, it's a lot of work for me, but uh, I hope you're enjoying it, and I think it gives us an opportunity to hear from a lot more people. Today's show, of course, is going to feature another great interview, and this time it's going to be with Memphis-based recording engineer Jeff Powell. Jeff, of course, has been at this for a couple decades, and you know he's played the role of assistant engineer, staff engineer, mixer, producer. He's been all over the place. Now he's cutting vinyl, which is pretty interesting, so... We're going to have a chat with him. He has worked with, oh my goodness, a ton of people. Bob Dylan, B.B. King, Tonic, Big Star, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, The Bottle Rockets, what else? Uh, Afghan Wigs, Primal Scream, Lucinda Williams. I tell you something really interesting about Jeff is he has had the opportunity in his experience to work with not only Jim Dickinson, producer Jim Dickinson, but also uh, Tom Dowd and Glenn Johns. Let me tell you, Jeff has something to bring to the table, and I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So here we are. I'm fresh back from uh, spring break from a nice little vacation with the family. Yeah, good to relax. Good to be back, though. Really, really happy to be back in the chair in my little studio here at home in Northern California. Hey, and I hope you enjoyed the interview on WCA number 14 with Sylvia Massey. Got a lot of good responses about that. So um, there it is. So here we go. Jeff Powell coming up here. I hope you enjoy this. Man, he's such a nice guy and, and what an experienced guy as well. And uh, that's it. Oh, I have to I have to say a thank you to uh, Matt Qualls and Vance Powell for referring Jeff to me. Thanks for for hooking me and, and Jeff up that uh, you'll see the the fruits of your labor right here in this interview. So talk to you after the interview. Hello, hello. Hello. Uh, I'm just turning off the video recording capability because it's giving me this warning saying, your Mac isn't fast enough. Oh, okay. What, what I did discover, though, uh, in talking to you about uh, FaceTime and considering FaceTime for the future, I need to upgrade to Mountain Lion on either one of my machines, which neither one of my machines can do Mountain Lion. That's, man, that's the position I was in. Where I, just, I just bought this Mac like last week because it was to the point where all these things I needed to do, I couldn't. You know, I was in that in that tweener land there. So then, now that I bought this, there's all kinds of stuff that I can't do from my, all my old stuff. You know, so Ugh. planned obsolescence. You know, they I, make you buy everything again. I know, man. I can't. I can't stand it. It drives me crazy. But no. Vance mentioned the podcast to you. Yes, yeah. So just that day, he was like telling me all about it and saying that he had done one, and my buddy Andrew Sheps had done one, and that. He's like, you should reach out because Matt's a great guy and you'd be great on there, da, 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 da. And then the next day, Matt Qualls is who actually <laughs> uh, contacted me and said that he knew you and like, you ought, to, you ought to hook up. I'll hook you guys up if that's cool. And I'm like, man, that's small world. Very small world, yeah. Um, I've watched a great interview with you on uh, YouTube. I know that you came up through uh, working at Kiva and Ardent, answering phones, and that you just kind of worked your way up. God, you got to work with Jim Dickinson. Yes. Yeah. And Tom Dowd, Glenn Johns, Glenn Johns, whose book I just read, really great book. Yeah, I got that too. It was very cool. 
we won't dive straight into business just yet, but I'm curious, the experiences with Glenn and Tom and Jim, what did that teach you? Well, I'll tell you, um, I ended up in Memphis because I came to, uh, to Memphis to go to the recording program at what was then Memphis State University. It's now called University of Memphis. But they had a recording program, and I knew that this is what I wanted to do, and I had as much passion or more than anybody in my class, but I'll be damned that when we would time to turn in our projects, to be honest, my stuff just didn't sound as good as everybody else's. And it got to the point where I was like, man, maybe I just don't have it. I was trying so hard, but, you know, we'd play our projects in class and, you know, I'd be just embarrassed. It's like, you know, it wasn't horrible, but it just wasn't. There were kids in my class that like you'd listen and go, wow, everything they do sounds really good. And everything I do is mediocre to poor, you know. There was a real moment when the light changed, the light came on for me, and that was because of when Jim Dickinson came and talked to our class. So here comes this guy, you know, in the middle of a, you know, it was an evening class, I think, and he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt and sunglasses, you know, and <laughs> and he pontificated about things for a while, you know, but here's what he said that got me. He's like, you guys make it too hard on yourselves. He goes, here, think of it like this. He said, what you're doing is using all these microphones and these transducers to catch capture air. Musicians make sound, and you're capturing the air. You're taking that air, and you're turning it into electricity for just a little, just for a second. But what you have the power to do, while it's electricity, your job is to not just catch the air, but while it's electricity, to be able to, that's when you have a chance to manipulate it. And you turn it back into air again when it comes out the speakers. And I remember some of the guys in my class just going, is he high or something? I mean, what was that all about? But it it literally just rocked me, man. I just sat there and went, that's all it is. That's what we're doing. And a light came on, and I started thinking of things like that in that in that way. And all of a sudden, my stuff started sounding pretty good. And then, it start, you know, then I started answering phones at Kiva, and I was just around it. I was around... I was in there when Stevie Ray Vaughan was doing InStep, and they let me sit on the couch sometimes and keep my mouth shut. But you, you're in that room, and you hear these amazing things being recorded, and it just rubs off on you. Within a year, you know, I was winning the student awards for the best-sounding projects. Not to diverge too much into college, but I ended up quitting college because I was working in studios too much, and I was also bartending and waiting tables for money because I wasn't making any money at the studios. And I was just trying to go to school, and it was just too much. I had to quit something, so I quit school. Through the years, I would go back and talk to the kids, you know, once or twice a year. And finally, the head of the program pulled me in to his office after I'd spoken to the students one day, and he goes, I pulled your transcript, man. Do you realize you've got like 200 and something hours and no degree? And I go, I know. I really wished I would have finished, but, you know, I just got too busy. He goes, man, you can turn in one of the records that you work on as your senior project. And there's just a couple other things you got to do and you could graduate still. So I graduated college in 2008. I went back and finished my degree. And when when did you start originally? 1987. (laughs) You know, so it made my mom happy. I was like, see, mom, I told you I'd graduate some 27 years. It took me to graduate college, but and the project that I turned in at the time, I was working on a Denzel Washington movie called The Great Debaters, and I, I recorded and mixed the whole soundtrack for that with the Sharon Jones and the Carolina Chocolate Drops and Alvin Young Blood Heart. And uh, it came out in the store on sale. Back, there were still record stores then. 
it came out the day my project was due, so I actually bought it at the store and left the left the wrap and the price tag on it when I turned it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but you know, back to your original question, Jim really did. He had this way of saying these little things, or even just hanging out with him in the hallway sometimes at Arden. You know, there, I probably did more of that than actual project. I only did a few projects with him per se, but. Um, there's another story I like to tell about Jim. One day I was just, I was up at Ardent and I was in the hallway and, hey Jim, how's it going, man? He's out by the coffee machine. He goes, I'm achieving the highest form of the art. I said, well, okay, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, well, do you hear the music coming through the door over there at Studio A? I go, yeah. And he goes, and I'm out here talking to you? I go, yeah. And he goes, I'm producing that in there. Producing in absentia is the highest form of the art. <laughs> He always had a story to tell or or he just had that way, you know, he was one of those producers that could walk in the room and it changed it changed everything when just because he was there. People tried very hard, the musicians would try very hard to please him or or, you know, get his approval and he had a way of making you want to do that whether you were engineering for him or you were the musician, you know, and I think that's how he got his results that he did, you know. And some of it was folklore and you know, just things that he would almost make up sometimes that were relevant and cool. But he always knew what the how to get to the place he wanted to go. And one of the stories you tell in the interview that I watched on YouTube, just I laughed out loud when you said it. You talk about um, Glenn Johns giving you an opportunity to uh, do a mix and coming in after 20 minutes saying, what do you got? And you said, well, right. I've got the drums. And he, of course, sat down and pulled the faders down and threw up what three mixes and told the band pick one yeah after you know pulling down the faders each time and not using the boards automation i laugh because it's it's something that i wish i could get away with and i laugh that it's like how, how does one achieve that uh i don't want to say cavalier but just kind of like that might be a good word cavalier i mean with glenn i mean it was you know again when he walked in the room things things uh things changed you know i I don't know if I told the story in the interview. Did I tell how I, my first encounter with him when I went by the rehearsal studio? No, I don't believe you did. So, so they were, he was working with Kelly Willis was the artist and, and they were doing a song for a big star tribute record, which is one thing, but I think, but they were work, they were seeing if they got along well together to, for Glenn, I guess, to make a record on her. So they're going to do the big star song and a couple of others. Anyway, they were rehearsing down the street. So I went by, I knew where it was, and uh, I waited outside the door until I heard the music stop. And I walked in uh, when I heard the music stop, and he turned around and glared at me and goes, who are you? And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm, I'm Jeff. I'm going to be the engineer tomorrow. I just wanted to come by when you get a break and kind of tell me what, how you want me to set things up. He goes, we're working right now. Have a seat. So it didn't start off so great. So I sat there and... <clears throat> You know, 15 minutes later, they took a break, and I went up to Kelly, and I hadn't met her before either, and I introduced myself, and she had just done an EP with the band 16 Horsepower as her backing band, and I had I'd made two records with them. I'd, I know I'd done one with them by then. I made, made both of them, but anyway, I said, hi, Kelly, we have some mutual friends, the guys from 16 Horsepower. I, I made their first record. Glenn was talking to somebody else, and he stopped his conversation, turned around, and he goes, you engineered and mixed the 16 Horsepower Sackcloth and Ashes? And I said, yeah, and he goes... That's the best record I've heard in 10 years. He goes, you don't need to ask me how to set up. Do whatever you did for that. Damn. 
you know, and I was like, wow, because he was good friends with David Anderley, I guess was his best friend from A&M, so I'm sure that might have had something to do with it, and that's the label they were on, and that was Anderley's pet project, you know, because it never did that well commercially, but um, so, you know, bam, there we are, we're, we're, we're doing okay again, and he said, yeah, just go ahead and do what you do. So I went up to the studio with, with the assistant, and we set everything up, kind of what I thought maybe might be the way we would go. And he'd gone next door to the Mexican restaurant and had a few margaritas, and he came in to kind of kind of looked around, and again, kind of did the yeah, interesting. But uh, do you want do you mind? You know, he wanted those again. I'm like, no, I don't mind. Whatever you want to do. So he showed me his whole thing, you know, and everybody knows the three Mike Glenn Johns thing but the way he described it and that I could picture it in my head and the big secret that he told me was about the way the rest of the instruments are in relationship to that and I I do when I do seminars about this I tell this all the time but the big trick is is you do the three microphone thing I won't even need to go into how that's done because everybody knows it but on you put up a baffle on one side and on the other side of the drums and the big trick is he told me was to have the uh, face of the recording, the let's say the bass cabinet. He always put it on the left for some reason. He said, and but the the face of the cabinet needed to be parallel with the kick drum. Same with the guitar. And then he put the guitar amps on the other side, and the the face of the amps try to make them exactly parallel with the kick drum. And he said, do that and isolate the singer, and we're done. And it was just absolutely unbelievable the way the bleed worked that way it was not a problem at all and it was a pretty loud drummer too and it was just i pushed up the faders and it sounded like an old stones record you know it was just great and so i call that the barn stall method because i still use a variation of that a lot of times it depends on the band that i'm working with it doesn't always work i've had it fail obviously too sometimes but so yeah it ends up looking kind of like a barn stall with with just one baffle in between they're not sealed off at all but that hope, I don't know why for sure, but that parallel thing with the kick drum, I mean, there's hardly any drums in the in the guitars and bass. And, and if the guitar players and bass player play at a reasonable volume, there's little or none in the drums, too, other than just a little bit of, it's cool bleed, you know, good bleed. And it works. I got to go. I got to go try that. <laughs> <laughs> try it see, man. And I've told so many people that, and I've had people write me and say, wow. It works. I've tried this 50 times before, and it never did anything for me. Now I get it. Wow. Well, enough about those guys. Let's talk about you. <laughs> you said in that, in that interview on YouTube, you said uh, the better the band is, doing the live thing with a lot of mic bleed is a lot easier. And the worse the band is, it's harder because, you know, the band's not as well rehearsed. Of course, they want to... Um, you know, hey, man, we want to do the live thing, but then, you know, you got one or two that are blowing their takes and, oh, can you fix that in Pro Tools and you com ghost notes com in the bleed of other instruments competing with the new overdub? Exactly. That's the problem usually, but depending how loud it is. How do you diplomatically or do you dip even use diplomacy when, when a young, inexperienced band, and I'm in a really kind of focus these questions right now on the young and inexperienced band. I find that when in the bands that I've dealt with in the past, the younger ones, they tend to come in with a little bit of recording knowledge. And I, and I say this with due respect to these bands, but come in with a little bit of recording knowledge and kind of an, a, an imagined 
romanticism about everything. So they come in with that attitude. So how do you deal with that when they say, I want to hire you to build the house and I want you to do it this way, but you know that it's not going to work. So how do you, how do you get around that? Well, that's a great question. Great question. There's two things that pop in my head about that. One is time. How much time do we have? Because if we have enough time and you know what budgets are now compared to what they used to be, they're, they're way, way, way smaller. So coming up in the days when there were half a million dollar budgets every time and I was the assistant engineer, I could see how much time would be wasted or you just would, you had the time to try everything and you had time to go down the wrong road and say, now let's pull it back and do it the way I was talking about. So now sometimes I do have to be a little more uh, curt, if you will, you know, um, if, cause my, my job is to get it, to get it done in a certain amount of time, you know, so you can go a number of ways. If it's the bass player goofing everything up, you can you can say, uh, "Man, I'm I'm not digging the the bass amp sound. Let's just take you direct." There's one right off the bat because bass goes everywhere. So if it's a bleed problem, you can eliminate that part real easily. Just say, "We're just going to go direct, and I'm going to reamp you later. I've got a great amp out in the hallway, and let's just do that." That can be a solver for that. Um, guitar players, you probably get got to argue with them a little bit to turn it down the, the master volume you know like keep your tone as much as you can as much as you want you know i know it's got to break up or do your thing if that's your tone but um you don't need to have it you got to tell them that don't it doesn't need to be the loudest thing in the world you can still record it reasonably at a reasonable volume and still get your tone i've got all kinds of things to make it louder in here you know in the final stages so you explain that to them so that's one way to get around that immediate problem i I, I do a lot of work at Sun Studios as well, and there's a pretty good story that goes along with it. And these aren't these weren't young guys, but it was actually Jerry Lee Lewis's band. And there was a, a fellow named Paul Mac Bonvin, who was the artist, and he was from Switzerland. And he was I, I think he was the uh, president of the Jerry Lee Lewis fan club or something like that. But he he could sing in English and play piano. He came. His idea was let's get Jerry Lee Lewis's band, and I'm going to go in and play these Jerry Lee songs and sing them with Jerry Lee's band and Jerry was playing Memphis in May. So the band was going to be here and they were going to come in after their performance and we we're just going to record them in two nights. So I had everything ready to go. They, and these are definitely not youngins and they come in, they've just been playing on stage. They're hot and sweaty and a little bit grumpy, but I've got everybody plugged in quickly. I knew we had to move quick. So we, they start playing this and Paul wanted to be on the floor with them and play piano and sing his live vocal. Mm-hmm. And they weren't being very quiet. They go through the first track. I looked at at uh, my friend Matt Rossbang, who runs oh, yeah. Sun, and my my assistant Lucas Peterson, who was there too. He's great. And I looked at both of them. I said, "You guys are are young. I want to teach you a lesson right now. We're halfway through this take, and this is the worst shit I have ever heard in my life. I have no idea what I'm going to do, and I've got about two minutes to figure this out. It was horrible." It's just a big mess. And they were laughing, you know, and they go, what, what are you going to do? And I go, I'm figuring it out, man. So <laughs> we, we got through the song and they were going to come in and listen. And I walked on the floor and I'm like, you guys, um, that's not even worth listening to. And if this is on my end and I know you guys want to get this done in a hurry, but for the sake of the recording, if you'll bear with me, we're going to have to 
I'm going to need to get drum sounds and then add in the bass and then add in the guitars and then add in the piano. Paul, right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have to overdub your vocals. You're just going to have to kind of whisper a guide vocal or something. We can get your piano live, but you're going to definitely. And his, and everybody went, okay. And so they go over to the to the soda shop next door and I get the drum. You know, I did it very fast. But we were up and rolling in 30 minutes and it sounded fantastic. And then it turned out being a blessing because Paul, we decided to do his overdubs. We went to Arden and he had time and he could work on some of his English pronunciation a little more. He didn't want, you know, he didn't want to hear, hear his accent so much. So everybody was extremely happy. And the guys were pulling me aside, go, thanks for doing that, man. You know, it sounds so good. And so sometimes what we think is going to be, I was ready for those guys to jump on me and go, damn it, man, you were supposed to be ready to go. But usually, man, everybody will pitch in and do what needs to be done, especially if they can come in and hear the result and go, that sounds fantastic. That's great. It, yeah. Do you think it's it's easier on the situation if you're just direct and just say, look, this is not happening. We have to do it like this instead of trying to like. It depends uh, on the personality who you're dealing with. You know, that I think that's de- def- definitely like inversely proportional to ego. If you've got a superstar that, you know, I've worked with people like that, too, where they're like, I don't I don't give a shit what you need to do. Just do it. I wonder sometimes in the old, rec- I love old recordings and the way they sound. And some of the funkiness to them, I think, is just because people were in a hurry or they're like, I don't give a crap, man. Let's just record now. Go. And you don't get to do everything that you thought you might get to do. And then they leave and like, you figure it out and you got to make it work and you got to make it sound like something. So sometimes by them acting like that, it throws me out of my comfort zone completely. And I've just got to think of it on the fly and yeah, make do. Um, I always tell the story about, I got to work with Bob Dylan when he came in before he got there, his manager said, Bob likes to sit in front of the drum kit and he does not like baffles. So don't even bring that up and definitely don't bring up putting him in a booth. Ain't going to happen. And it pisses him off. Oh, okay. So, I stick, I mean, literally three feet in front of the kick drum, facing the drums. There he is. And we start off, and the first song was a real light brushes song. So the bleed wasn't a big deal. He came in, and he loved it. He goes, can we do another one? Because they just come in to supposedly just do one song for some tribute record. He goes, can we do another one? I'm like, of course. So he goes out and sits down, and they play it, and it's a little bit louder. And uh, he comes in and listens, and he goes, no, no, because my vocal sounds far away. I said, yeah, I agree with you. That's that's because of all the drum bleed in your vocal mic. He goes, well, what can we do about that? And I went, we can put a baffle up. <laughs> you know, and his manager's behind him kind of giving me the stink eye. We had, a, we had a thin baffle that was tall, and it had a plexiglass window in it, so he could still see, so I think it was okay. So he sat down, we did another take, and he came back in and listened again. He's like, mm-mm. No, man, it just don't. My my vocal sounds far away. He goes, what can what else could we try? And I said, well, look, man, we can either put the drums in the booth or we could put you in the booth. We'd been there two or three hours by this time, you know, by this point, you know, and everything was going great. And he goes, well, how long would it take to put the drums in the booth? And I had three assistants working with me. I go, man, we can knock it down, set it back up, get sounds. Twenty twenty five minutes. He goes, how long would it take to put me in the booth? And I said. Five minutes. 
He just stood up, put his hands in his pockets, and walked out of the room. And I was like, shit, man, I blew it. And then his guys come in, some of the roadie guys, and we had a stack, of, I don't know, a stack of reel-to-reel tapes already three feet high. Because we were, I was instructed, like, if he's in the room, you're in record. You know, I had one guy just watching him. He's in, he's in the room, you know. So we had all this, all this tape already rolled. So these guys come in and start taking the reels of tape. I'm like, damn, I guess he, I guess that's that. This manager comes in and uh, said, so is he pissed? Is, is he, are you guys leaving? And he goes, I don't know. He said, he just said he's hungry. We're going to go eat. So why are you <laughs> taking the tapes? And he's like, we have to bootlegs people. We have to be super careful about that. I said, okay. Wow. So, uh, I said, what should I do? What should I have set up when he re- if he comes back? He goes, set him up in the booth. Wow. I put him in the booth, and he, you know, it was two or three hours before he came back. I still, we didn't know if he's coming back or not, but he came back, man, and uh, we stayed up till 8 o'clock in the morning. We must have cut 10 or 11 songs. He loved it. He was having the time of his life, you know? And then at the end of the night, he goes, can you mix a couple of these for me tomorrow? And I said, Absolutely. But I'd like to mix in Studio A. I was back in Studio C, and they didn't have automation. And A was kind of my room where I worked all the time. And uh, he said, why? Why why would you want to change? And I said, well, that has automation in A, and they don't have it in C. And he goes, why would you need automation? I go, I don't have to, but I could make it sound. I did the old you know percentage thing. I'm like, I could make it sound 15% better. He goes, Okay. But then what I had forgotten is there was a full tracking session going on in Studio A from an outside producer. So I had to go over and beg that guy. I was like, can you please stand down tomorrow? I've got a chance to mix Bob Dylan. And, you know, we'll obviously comp your time or I'll pay for your day and we'll put it, everything back right where it is. He goes, all right, man, but just get me an autograph and we're cool. I said, no, <laughs> no problem. You know, of course, I never asked him for it. <laughs> oh, shit. But yeah, I ended up mixing three of them uh, for him that next night. So it was, that was a hell of an experience. But again, see, I mean, it's like back what we were originally talking about. I don't know why he has in his head no, I mean, maybe he doesn't like the isolation of being in a booth. It feels like he can't see or vibe off what's going on. But there's ways to do that besides sitting in front of the kick drum. I had some experiences with people from Keith Urban's, I don't want to say entourage, but, you know, all the business people and all those people that surround those kind of folks, do you think that they just take a situation, oh, Bob had a bad experience in a booth. We can't go in the booth again. I think that's exactly it. And they they perpetuate these myths? I think so. I think so. Or maybe Bob did the thing like that somewhere and come out and just said, don't ever make me do that again. Don't ever let that happen to me again. You know, I never want to go in a booth again. That's something that he might have flippantly said that becomes doctrine. Yeah. You know? Really, really crazy. You had mentioned, uh, once again, back to that YouTube interview, you talked about band tension. A uh, certain amount of tension that always exists uh, within a recording session and, you know, the percentage of how much tension is really there uh, will depend on, you know, the dynamics of the band. When you have bands where the tension is high, what do you, what do you do to try to alleviate that tension? How do you manage that tension? And do you ever use it to your advantage? Yeah, I try to keep my sessions pretty lighthearted. I mean, I'm not, I don't have to tell a joke between every take or anything like that, but you know, just, just being a relaxed 
having fun kind of person is the way I act, you know. And um, I have a very dark sense of humor, so there's always there's always you know gross jokes or things like that. But I, I find humor a lot of times alleviates that. And I think the source of those kind of fights, from my experience, most of the time are not as much musical as they are songwriter based. You have two songwriters in the band, that's the problem usually because then that rolls over into the sound. I wrote the song, I hear it a certain way. I want I don't want you playing mandolin on this track. I wrote it. I want to play pedal steel. You know, that whatever it may be. Um t- to me that's the bigger a bigger source I think of of the tension and the arguing is when people have fights because they wrote the song that gives them the right to dictate more than you're just the lead singer. I want you to sing it the way I hear it, you know, mm-hmm. and that can fall within instrumentation and arrangements and things like that. And that's the hardest challenge to me because you can't just by nature. I, you know, there ends up being certain people in the bands that you work with that you are closer to than others, you know? Um, and if somebody's, if somebody's kind of an asshole, you know, most of the guys in the band know the guy's an asshole or, or gal's an asshole. You know, it's it's, and I've seen some, as you have too. Sometimes these people are just pampered to death. You know, people people just don't tell them the truth. Um, and I think all of that feeds into it can be a very negative thing. You know, so you just try to lighten that a little bit, um, let the air out of it a little bit, and not take it so damn seriously. You know, Tom Dowd used to say something all the time that so great just said he would just say you know just record the damn thing we can hate it later you know you hear all these arguments i i have that quote written down that you've yeah you mentioned yeah it's it's a great quote still it's still so um it applies man it's true by the time you get done with this studio argument um you could have recorded it two ways and it's usually apparent to everybody in the whole control room that well obviously this works sometimes you'll get somebody so stubborn they don't care anymore and it it's about winning the argument, not about what they're arguing about in the first place. On the topic of um, band members that are so attached to their sound, I run into this situation where, you know, my my job or our job is to kind of oversee the bigger picture of how does this sound as a group? How does this sound as a record? Whereas I run into a lot of band members that are so insular or in their own bubble with regards to their sound. And you, you know, guitar players, guitar, guitar players or drummers, you know, and I'm a drummer, so I know all the drummer weirdness and can call out bullshit when I see it. Right. But it's very difficult to deal with, you know, those band members like the guitar player that like, like, like I've heard you mention before, uh, you had made reference in, in an interview to a guitar player with a delay pedal or, or reverb pedal or something that was just clouding everything up and you went out and were like oh well here's our problem right here there's you've got this like massive reverb on your guitar well, that's, yeah it was like a 20 second delay or a 20 second delay time or decay time yeah yeah and and the person was like well that's my sound <laughs> your sound is goofing everything up in the for everybody else right how do yeah. you how do you deal with people like that and and still like I, for me i'm and i ask you because I deal with this shit all the time, and I'm like, how do I say this without being a dick? Um, sometimes I'm a dick, I guess, because I just say it. But I try not to be. You know, I, I don't look at my job as a producer as being the 
even though it's true that I feel like the buck's got to stop with me, if there's an argument, I'll go ahead and be, make an unpopular choice if it's if it has to be that way. But sometimes you got to just, you know, you're not going to be the most popular guy in the room. You know, you've got you've got you doing it. They got to understand. I'm like, I'm not doing this for me, but we've got to move on here, and I want you to try this. And see if that you can still feel it. See if you can still play it. But we've got to lose the twenty second decay time, man. You know, um, or you pull out another pedal or another. You know, if I've got an echoplex. Why don't you try this? Have you ever played through an echoplex? And the, if it's no, and they do, they're like, "Whoa, that sounds so cool." You know, you can d- distract them even sometimes into doing something else. But I do think it's important for you know. What if the edge didn't have his delay thing? You know, it's did you ever see that on uh, It Might Get Loud, what his like what he's playing without all the, the delay and stuff? I mean it's, Oh yeah, it's crazy. It's unbelievable, man. <laughs> but you know, the second edge touches his guitar, he sounds like the edge, man. So in that situation, you're not gonna say, Let me just add that delay later on. I mean, he's gotta be, he's getting off on that sound and playing to it, obviously, you know. So it's a fine line. It know? is, and I and I guess the uh the more experienced or well known the player is i find it harder like I, I did a radio station gig robert crane and his band came in and they actually were running early and they showed up and i was like whoa hey you guys are here and i'm not even ready and they were like oh that's cool we're running ahead of schedule i was like oh well that's 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 kind of new and that's so we go we get all, everything set up and did some recording before the audience even got there and drummer came in to the uh control room and he listened and goes that sounded really good, man. Um, you know, if there's anything you want Robert to do on his guitar, you know, uh, as far as tone, you know, you, you just let him know. And I just turned to him. And I was like, you want me to tell Robert Cray how his guitar amp should sound? And right. I was like, there's no way. Right. And he was like, no, no, no. Robert's totally cool. If, if, really, if you hear anything, just tell him. And I, because I was very just in awe of the fact that that was Robert Cray. Well, I think in a sense of like that, that's, you know, that's his, his hands. I think especially in guitar players' worlds, it's it's the way that they play, you know. Um, Stevie Ray comes to mind. When I was an assistant, I've got all his amp settings written down for him and Jimmy's amp settings written down for the Vaughn Brothers record that I was the assistant on. Now, you know, I could set up those amps exactly like it. I could go find a guitar exact model number and you could play the notes that he played and it wouldn't sound like Stevie Ray Vaughn. And I have a bit of a theory about tuning as well, man. I think uh, too much tuning is done. It's just done to death. I think certain people sound the way they do because where their fingers fall in the strings and the way they, how hard they press them down. And yeah, that third might be a little bit flat every time, or the way the neck on the guitar is. I think the perfection of the the obsession over everything perfectly being in tune is not very rock and roll to me. And I think I think you can remove some personality of the player by getting too much, worrying too much about that. Now, if you're in a bluegrass band, yeah, man, those things, those guys, they're every note's perfectly in tune. But in, in rock, and especially in guitar rock and stuff, I think about the Afghan wigs, the work I've done with them. You know, they tuned all, they tuned all the time, but those guitars are lar- largely not perfectly in tune. There's a, and it makes... It makes it bigger sounding. I, you know, you know, I can tell in two measures that's the Afghan wigs playing. Mm-hmm. And again, they weren't sitting there stopping in the middle of the take and go, "Man, I just can't get this G string to stay in tune." You know, it's they just played it, and it's. Uh, I think that way about voices 
as well, you know. Um, With regards to auto-tune or? Yeah, I just don't use it. Yeah. And maybe I'm, as a producer, maybe I'm not as uh, financially successful because I don't, but I'm just not interested in it, you know. I would do it in an instance where, oh, God, how did we miss that? And that's really bad. But I really try to get the singer to just sing, and I comp things together. I'm, I'm not a punch this word, punch that word, tune everything, or spend all that time getting a perfect vocal and then running it through auto-tune just for that thing that it does. And I'm not, not talking T-Pain where it's all wobbly and weird, but it just sounds like robots. And I've said this for a long time, and I'm hearing it now. I mean, if you watch American Idol, the way that kids are singing these days, the young people are singing these days, there's no, they're singing in stair steps. They're not, there's no glyphs between sliding around between notes. I'm saying I'm speaking in sweeping generalities. I shouldn't do that. But, you know, you can hear they, they are shooting for notes, and that's what I would call stair steps. They are, they are attacking it and holding that note, and they are trying to hit that note perfectly, and which lends itself to like, well, we can auto-tune that and get that just right. But swoop-ups and swoop-downs and, and space between the notes, it's, uh, it's different because that's what they're hearing on the radio. Imagine if Keith Richards played guitar like that. Yeah. That it wouldn't sound the same. Yeah, exact great great example because you know now you've got Melodyne where you can go tune a polyphonic instrument and get it perfect. I just I see no Yeah. I that I'm glad there's people that do that. They'll they'll have plenty of work. I, <laughs> Job I security. I'm not worried. I'm not worried about that. When you produce, well first of all, do you have a manager? No, I've had three. You've had three. And three time loser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like three like, ex-wives yeah that's what i'm saying it's like you know it's like the guy who's got five wives no but i've tried uh at three different ones they were all very different i never got to the level i don't think of being so busy that i wasn't able to do my session effectively because i'm on the phone setting up my next gig which is really annoying to the band that you're working with i think phones in general and sessions not cool you know i put my turn mine off when i'm when i'm working and you know, I hate talking to bands when they've got their phone and they're just noses in the phone or they can't go five minutes without texting. It just too, it's so distracting, you know, mm-hmm. to them for their sake. I never was that busy. And I had a, I had a tough guy manager. I had a super sweet, nice manager. And in, in either case, you know, it does kind of, to my opinion, it gives you two bites at the apple. If you, there's a record you really want to do, they can get your money up because, I don't love talking about money when it comes to that with bands, you know, it's, uh, it's always a little bit awkward. You decide like, yeah, I really want to work with your band. Let's, they want to work with you and, you know, okay, let's move forward. How much is it? And then, uh, oh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not very expensive compared to a lot of people. Sometimes they would get me a little more money, but more often than not, you know, they would, they have to come back and ask me anyway, you know, like, will you do it for this? Yeah, I'll do it for that. So your money stays nearly in the same place, but you're commissioning them as well. So, And then there's also always the argument. I had managers that said, I'll just take a commission on what I get you, stuff that you wouldn't have had. You keep all your old clients. Because I have a lot of repeat clients and always have. So, gosh, and now i got to knock off another 15 20% of what would have been mine anyway. You know, that gets a little tough to swallow sometimes, too. But we never, I never had a manager where it ended up in like, you know, bad vibes or 
anything like that. We just decided to go our own way after a certain amount of time. Uh, I had one manager that charged all of his clients equally for everything he did. So another, he was managing bands too. So if he went with his band over to Europe, I would get a portion of that bill to pay for his airline ticket and da, 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 da every month. And, you know, he got, I was with this guy for a year and, and I would pay my bill at the end of the month. And other people I've talked to, like, you paid him, man. That's supposed to be held until he gets you a gig. And then that comes out of that. And I was like, I was writing him checks, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he loved you. Yeah. He loved me. But, uh, so yeah, that's my manager experience. I, I know that there is a need for him. I don't know. Those are some clever guys in the music business because they've figured a way to, you know, because I think a good one can be very important if you're, you know, if you're at that level where you're doing a lot of commercial stuff and there's, there's just the higher up you go, man, the more drama there is, face it. And more people involved. Yeah. And they can be helpful in sorting all that out. You know, major labels still don't pay in a timely fashion. So hmm. sometimes you got to stomp your foot about money. That's never fun because if everything went well with your project and then you're 90 days down the road and you haven't been paid and you've got to start calling, they're like, oh, we lost your invoice. Can you re-invoice? You know, you know the game. It's infuriating, you know, and then you end up just like, I'm not, I'm not really interested in doing another record for that label, man. I don't have any records out on any major labels, never have from a uh, from an engineering standpoint as a drummer I, I i was in a band that was on warner brothers but i find it like i hear the horror stories of oh we lost your invoice the, that old routine and it makes me appreciate the indie clients that i have where the guitar player or the singer's cutting the check at the end of the session and you know that's it We're- yeah you know one of my favorite i cut you know i cut vinyl now too right no i didn't know that Yes, I'll, I'll go into that in a little bit. But one of my favorite records was that I did. The guy sent me a check for half of it, and then he was friends of a friend of mine who was going to see him on tour. And I got the other half with small bills and change in a sock. <laughs> Here, give this to pal. And that was endearing to me. I was like... There's no doubt where this is coming from. This guy is emptying his damn change jar to be able to cut his vinyl record, you know? Yeah. That record ended up being nominated for a Grammy, for Best Engineered Grammy. Wow. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the indie indie clients, I mean, I just think everything's a little more real down down in this level. It's, It's just not as driven by numbers, you know? Everything at the corporate level, when it's a major label, they're all scrambling for every penny. And the longer they can hold on to your money, if they do that to hundreds of people, that's thousands of dollars a year in interest they're going to make just by not paying you in a timely fashion, you know? So, again, aren't we supposed to be having fun here? I hate it when something, when everything goes great in the studio and then it turns out sour because somebody got in there and, try, you know, money making things weird or lack thereof. Or I learned a good lesson once, uh, you know, it's, gosh, it's probably been 10 or 15 years, but... The guy, the mad band's manager, we were done. Everybody was happy, and this was something we did at Arden. The manager had gone down to the casinos and lost the budget gambling. <sighs> and <laughs> ended up, you know, they comped him a room in Tunica, so the whole band was staying in one room instead of where they were staying here in town because he had to move them because he was getting a free room at the casino, and 
he was trying to get his money back by gambling more and it just it ended up bad but another money person came in and they were writing the, the lesson is he was writing checks and he wrote me my check and I said you know what man he's like we don't we're short and I said well look go ahead and write the studio the check your check to the studio write them theirs because you can't leave with your you can't leave with any CDs or any music unless you they're paid and you can you can get he goes man I'll have the money Tuesday I said look that's cool just just mail me mail me my check and it was a significant amount of money and I of course I never got it mm-hmm. and it got ugly and then all of a sudden the mix they didn't want to pay me because the mixes didn't sound right when they got home and find out the lead singer and doesn't have a speaker on his left side and all the stuff that I'd hard panned, he wasn't hearing his guitar. He goes, can we remix it to bring things in for people who have blown speakers? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to mix for that guy? You know, no. And it went as far as to where this this guy, this manager, a year had gone by, and I'd already written it off. He calls me out of the blue and goes, man, I'm so sorry the way things ended. I want to make things right with you. What's your address? Here's a FedEx number. I'm gonna you'll you'll have your check tomorrow. I'm gonna the band is broken up. Da 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 da. So sorry. All this other stuff was going on, and the package didn't come. And I go check the FedEx number, and it's not even a real FedEx number. He just called to to mess with you know. What what what's the point of that? Just being mean, huh? You know. And so that you know, there's that too. That that the wound had pretty much healed by then, and it's like. Let's open that sucker up again. <laughs> Let me slash you down the arm one more time. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's an extreme story, but it's just, I used to keep track of if all the people who owed me money paid me, and all it did was make me crazy because my house would be paid for. Are you proactive these days in trying to make sure that you get paid? Do you deal in deposits? I don't, man. I still, again... Probably isn't the smartest thing to do, but I still try to be enthusiastic and excited about the stuff that I do. Not try to, but this, the projects that I pick to work on now, especially in this studio, no, I don't require a deposit. And 95% of the time, everything's cool, especially in vinyl world. People can't believe it because I'm doing a lot of vinyl now. And a lot of times they'll say, Do you need a deposit before you start? Well, the thing is, everybody in the vinyl world is there's such a a lag time because the plants are also backed up. I've heard that. Um, five months. If you if you were to call today on the phone, most plants would tell you five months before. If if I were to cut the lacquers today, you're gonna it's gonna be five months before you're gonna have your finished thing in hand. So everybody's in a hurry, and in vinyl world, things can go wrong. There can be, you don't know till you can't play it after you cut it. So you do everything the best you can, and if you think there's a trouble area, you do a little test cut on a scrap. But until the test pressing comes, you don't know if there's going to be a pop or a skip or whatever for sure. So, if there, if, but if there is, I got we start over again, you know. So I just tell people, pay me. I invoice after I do the work and say, pay me. And most of the time, everybody's. I don't. It's again only a few major labels I've had to stomp my foot at that go past ninety days, you know. But I tell them to continue. To be able to give this price and what I do, I have to keep the machine rolling. So please don't. I did, but I tell them. I said a good old. Fa- I don't even like you want Skype or PayPal or like. Then I have to add in the percentages and all that stuff. To so I said, man, just a good old fashioned analog check in the mail is cool. They like that. 
you know, just dealing with people straight up on the money, we'd certainly talk about it before. I, I was to the point, I went through a, a period for a while where I was getting so, you know, cer- certain number of things happened in a row. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to start getting a, a video camera and putting it up. And we're, when we make our deal, whatever it is, sit on the couch. I'm going to explain what I think the deal is. Have them sit on the couch and you explain to me in your words what you think the deal is. It's so simple. And that's our deal. We don't need to pay a lawyer and do contracts because, you know, my opinion is, is that if, if there is a disagreement and you've got your little two or three page producer contract, what you've got now is just a disagreement on paper. Again, it's different when you're up at the level of if it's tens of thousands of dollars, that's one thing. Or the record's a hit and you're feeling like, wow, they're not paying me my points. In the indie world, I've worked out over the years, the way I charge for my producer fee is either little or no advance. And rather than get into the points and have to do the whole math equation of, okay, this is for retail and after this, this and this is taken out, which is a standard contract that I learned how to read growing up. I just say, man, every time you manufacture a record, it's, you give me 25 cents. They're like, 25%? I go, no, 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 not 25%, 25 cents. So if you manufacture 10,000 records, you owe me $2,500. You have the potential to make $100,000 if you sell them all for 10 bucks a piece. I get $2,500. So quarter every and I don't say base it on sold or sound scan because that's too hard to keep track of. So when you go, because most people make two or 3,000 CDs at, in the indie world, you know, at a time. So you owe me 750 bucks if you order, if you make 3,000 CDs, 750 bucks. When you go back for your reprint, 25 cents a record. And it works pretty well. Do you have to monitor that or do you even bother? I don't have to because they're going to pay me when they manufacture. So if they want to make 3,000 records and let them sit in their closet, I'm still getting it's, – it's almost like a mechanical royalty for, uh, you know, for Harry Fox or something. You're going to be charged that licensing fee for however many you make. They're not going to worry how many you sell. But how do, how do you monitor? Like if, like if I told you, hey, all right, I'll give you a quarter of a record, and I tell you, oh, well, we only made 1,000, but in reality, we made 10,000. Well, then, yeah, that's not cool. Uh, that's <laughs> a, not that's cool. a chance I have to take. But here, and I guess I'm most, this is what I'd mostly do locally, uh-huh. and there is a manufacturing plant here, and I know the, I know the owner. That's actually who they've started a, a record pressing plant here as well. So I went to college with the guy who one of the owners of the CD manufacturing house. So if I wanted to, I'm like, how many did they, did uh, they make? Okay. What about major labels and points? Do you deal in that world? You know, at that point, yeah, I would have some sort of letter of direction. You know, usually you get a letter of direction from the artist, so it'll follow their deal. And basically it's just an addendum, addendum to that, um, that I'll get two points. I'll let them do all the math and that they go ahead and pay me directly instead of paying the artist. And then a lot of indie labels will go, I'm not going to be fooling with that. I'm not going to write you a check and them a check. I'm paying for their record. Da, 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 da. That's up to them. You make your, you make a side deal with the artist or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it works like that sometimes too. The way I do it is not a strict, well-oiled machine. I kind of go with the flow and don't make that my big focus. Maybe to my detriment sometimes. I don't know, but... Mm-hmm. It seems to work. I just try to believe in people that are mostly, most of them are going to do the right thing. Tell me about uh, the vinyl thing. You So you're cutting vinyl. When did you get into that? 
I've been doing it for six years now, um, and it's on the original Stax lathe, no less. Oh. So it's really cool. Um, I guess it was 2008, so it's been going on seven years now. But Larry Nix was the cutter at Stax back in the day. He, they bought a lathe, and Larry, when they went out of business in 1975, Larry bought the lathe and brought it over to Arden, which is, and so he's been the house mastering guy at Arden for all those years. You know, I kept, I, honestly, I just kept bugging Larry about it. and like, man, you go home every night at 5 o'clock and you don't work weekends. Why don't you train me to cut vinyl and I'll come in at night and I'll rent the machine from you and you'll come in. There'll be a check on your turntable in the morning. How cool would that be? He was real resistant to it for a long time. He just didn't want to fool. He's like, man, it's just too much of a headache. The reason I got out of it, just I just, but he got out of it when it was really, really thin, when it was just an occasional because you know, he was mastering CDs and stuff as well. So it was just, compared to CDs, he was just done fooling with it, and it had kind of not worked for just, there's only a couple of years where it really wasn't in, in working condition, but we got it fired up again, and him and John Fry went through, and Chris Jackson, the tech at Art, and they went through everything and got it meant, and he started teaching me. So um, I've already cut 60 records this year. Oh, my God. So I'm doing, it's, it's probably going to take me over. And there's a pressing plant here now that just opened. So, um, you know, it's very exciting. I absolutely love it. I absolutely love doing it. It takes several years ago, the, the people, there's only one company in the United States that makes blanks. And they carbon co- they copied all the cutters saying that the prices were going to go up. So if you wanted to stock up on, on the blanks, it would be a good time to do. But they didn't, they didn't blind carbon copy. So I counted how many cutters there were. Counting me at the time, there were 88 I don't know if that's the world or the United States, but there's there's just not many people who know how to do it. So I feel really lucky that Larry took the time with me and trained me how to do it. Um, I talk to all the old cutters that I can, and there's not a whole lot of reading material or a book on how to do it. It's definitely a craft that you have to apprentice under and show and make a lot of mistakes and, and learn, you know. But I'm loving it. That machine sounds great, and we're cutting some really cool stuff you know from the technical side it's a it's a it's a challenging thing from a physical standpoint i guess to really get the grip on because i mean you you are dealing in a physical medium and so did you did you fuck a couple of them up yeah the the main thing you got to make sure you didn't fuck the machine up before i larry said he only taught one person to do it in his all these years and the first job they did they ran the cutter head into the side of the platter and blew up the cutter head and I said, God, how much was that? He said, back then it was 30 grand. <gasps> oh my goes, now you'll be the guy that ruined the stacks lathe because you can't really find another cutter head. There's a couple of dudes in the world maybe that might rewind them or something. But it would be really, really, really bad if we blew up the cutter head. <laughs> so it makes your heart go pitter patter a little bit, you know. Makes you pay attention. Oh yeah. Intense. So, it's intense. What's your rate for that? I charge for LPs and ten for twelve, 12 inch and ten inch. I charge two hundred a side, uh-huh. and for uh, seven inch singles, it's a hundred dollars a side. What's the name of the plant there uh, in Memphis? Right. Memphis Record Pressing. Okay, so and I would assume you have a relationship with them, and yeah, it's Bruce Watson from uh, Fat Possum Records. Okay. Um, he joined in with these guys. There was a company called Audio Graphics Masterworks. It was the CD manufacturing place I was telling you about earlier. 
they were obviously seeing CDs are going away. They're shrinking. And so they saw how much vinyl was growing and started seeking out a partner. And Bruce does so much vinyl. You know, he owns the whole, Fat Possum owns the whole high catalog. So all the Ann Peebles and Al Green and Otis Clay, Ovi Wright. I'm getting to go back and cut reissues of all that stuff. The week after the Grammys when I got back, in one day I cut Al Green's Greatest Hits, Let's Stay Together, and uh, the Black, a Black Keys record. I was like, man, this is fun. This is awesome. But it's one of those deals where the music, the machine tells me what to do. You know, So there's not, the thing I'm up against mostly is long sides. You know, People, I'm like, you have to, you have to cut something down, you have to edit, or you need to go to four sides or whatever, you know. And if you go to four sides, your cost is going to double on everything, including artwork. So you either go for a double album or I can cut it, but, it, you know, I'm going to have to cut it super low in volume, roll off all the bass, and you're going to hear surface noise, it's going to be noisy. So if you don't give a shit what it sounds like and you just want it on vinyl, we can stick it on there. But I really take my time and try to get it on there sounding as great as I possibly can. You know, and I think a lot of these, uh, there's, there's a number of cutters that I think are just so slammed right now that I could set it and forget it and just roll them on through. But, you know, I'll, you got to do passes in real time. We call it a dummy run where you set up the lathe and then you pretend like you're cutting it and the thing moves, the cutter head moves across the platter without dropping the cutter head. And if you make it before it beeps, then then you put a lacquer on and you cut the thing. If it if you don't make it, I take notes all the way across as it's going, you know, and what I can so I'm like, well, I'll turn it down. I'll, I missed it by 20 seconds. I'm going to turn it down 1 dB. Let's do it whole side again. Okay, we made it. Now let's cut it. So I think a lot of times people go, it didn't fit. Turn it down 5, roll off some more low end, stick it on there, let's go. So I try to take all the time I can. Is your source a digital source? Yes, it's surprising that I only get a few requests that come off, you know, to come off tape. I just don't have a preview deck. I'm looking for I'm everybody is. I'm always looking for one, but you understand how it works. There's like a pre, the old mastering tape decks, there's uh two basically two identical sets of playback electronics. There's no record even on those machines. On the Neumann lathe that I'm using, it wants to see one revolution ahead. Because there's a what's called a variable pitch and depth computer, good old 1970s computer, but it looks one revolution ahead and says, "Uh oh, here comes a big bass event." Spreads the grooves and gives you more rooms. Like, oh, this is acoustic guitar and voice. We don't need as much space, so then it'll change the land between the grooves. It packs them in there more, so you can get longer sides in. And that's in in the most simple terms. That's the way it works. So on these old decks, it was depending on how you would thread the machine and what speed you were running at provides that delay time. So now. In the computer, we basically have four outputs, and they're delayed by that amount of time. One one set of tracks goes to the preview computer, and one track goes to the actual cutter head. Huh. So it tells us what's going to what it's going to do. Didn't Studer make the the machine that one would use to cut from? If you were Studer using had tape one, as your um, MCI had some a real popular one. Those were probably the two most popular, and and there's obviously the the modded ATR decks that, you know, some people have. I just haven't, I haven't had the demand for it. I'd like to be able to keep it completely analog. That would be, you know, that would really be cool. Um, and does the, does the digital source that you have, does it support 32 bit or is it only 24? Most of the stuff I get, I mean, I get everything. I've got one guy who's sending me stuff from West Africa 
He's like, don't don't yell at me if I give you an MP3. I know the difference, but this is all they have to record with. So I've actually even cut vinyl off of MP3s before, which is kind of maddening. But most of the stuff I get, I ask them to, to be 24-bit just because you have more dynamic range, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, if they can, 4824, 9624, it's great. But I, a lot of times, you know, I have to just take what they what they can give me. It's been great, man, because all my I have yet to take out an ad. Uh, my website for it is just a picture of the lathe and my contact information, and you know I'm about as busy as I can, as about as busy as I can be without getting another lathe and kicking it up another notch. So, well. with regards to that, is that your main source of income right now? Like, what, I'm curious. Like, does studio? I just work- did my taxes, and it's it's we're right at fifty fifty right now. Wow. With the predictions, with the plant being here, once they're rolling and they're sending me all their business, it's going to, I predict this year it'll be 75-25, and then it'll be, you know, I think I'll have the luxury of just saying I'm only going to do a couple of records a year in the studio, stuff that I really, really want to do, which I've been able to do that for a while, you know. I don't take everything that that comes my way, which is which is great for me because, you know, I just feel like I can, I'm only working on, I'm not doing stuff that I'm like, Oh God, I hate this. Or I have to work with some horrible band. I don't like, um, (laughs) you know, I used to call that an uncle Sam record. Like I'll do one of those a year and pay my, just consider I'm paying my taxes with this, all the money I make from this record. This is, this is my uncle Sam, but man, it's not cool. It's just not, it's like, man, I'll never do that again. You know, the common thread amongst many guests on my on my podcast is diversification to make ends meet and this is another example of that do you do you feel like could you make ends meet without doing the vinyl i would have to be my focus would have to be shifted mm-hmm. yeah you know i've always stayed in the game i had i had a room 3 3 or 4 years ago me and my assistant lucas peterson who i mentioned earlier we found this old warehouse space that was just sonically amazing, except when it rained, it had a tin roof, so you had to stop if it rained. But it was unbelievable. It was I can't remember how many square feet, but it was giant. And the acoustics were, it had this real weird unlevel floor, like uh, just unfinished concrete kind of floor. So no parallel surfaces. It was kind of in a trapezoidal shape, but you could stand on one wall and clear across the room, you could whisper and hear each other. It was freakish. And we went with the whole no control room kind of thing. We just had a just a console set up out in the middle of the room. Everybody's in the same room. So I love recording like that too, you know. But that was a whole new way of doing things. So yeah, I, I've always figured out a way to stay in. I'm not I'm bas- I'm not doing anything else. You know, there's uh I don't have children, so maybe that's why uh I'm still able to do that. And my wife is a musician, so between the two of us, you know, we've we've made our living. We've been together 23 years, and um, we've made our living in the music business in Memphis, Tennessee. You know, we've gotten to travel all over the world, you know, together and separately. And she's she's a background singer. She's gotten to tour with all kinds of people, and together we got it. We figured we figured just figure out how to do it. You know, it's mm-hmm. there's certainly been there's certainly been times. You know, again, if I had children, where it's not about you anymore, and you actually you know you have to have a steady paycheck every week, then we probably wouldn't have survived just being in the music business. Maybe, but I respect I respect anybody who does because I know that's a whole nother whole nother challenge. And I've another ball of wax. And I've got so many friends of mine who started out, 
the same time I did. And there's very, very few of them still just doing, doing this, you know, the money's gone down so much, you know, I, I can't think of another profession where, you know, my basic day rate is a third of what it was in the early nineties. It is a tough business. And, you know, I do a lot of different stuff, music related. I do a lot. I do audio cleanup for people and, uh, people always ask, Oh, well, you know, that must be really hard. I'm like, actually the more corporate or non-musical audio gets, the price goes up and the task gets more simple. It's really weird. Wow. So do you, you do forensics and stuff? Well, I, I, I don't, I hate hesitate to say forensics, but it's basically, it's like police departments or offices of the public defender will call me and, Hey, we got this undercover tape. Can you get rid of the air conditioner? Right. Oh yeah, no problem. Or can you get rid of the bus? Or we need to I've hear this guy. I've always been fascinated by that. That's cool. I like that. And it's you know it's not it's definitely not as popular as uh, cutting vinyl. Well, I, I always have to think about this too because I do a fair amount of speaking, you know, to young people. And um, for for two or three years after I graduated, they had me come be a professor, adjunct professor at the university, and so I was overseeing senior projects, and I really enjoyed that. But quickly learned that wasn't about the money. I mean, I ended up having to quit because they there was usually four or five students a semester, and I could spend a good fair amount of time. There came one semester where there was just one student. Their their offer was, "We'll give you four hundred dollars for the semester." Oh, to teach this one student, and that's after we'd already been working for six weeks. And I'm like, "No, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, no. sorry for the student, man, because we were getting somewhere, but." You know, I called him and told him what happened. He goes, well, I wouldn't do that, you know. So I had to walk away from that. That's that's a bummer, you know, that they didn't want to pay. But I really, I really enjoyed teaching, you know. Um, I helped my wife with – we make records on her, so we have a small label that we run, and I do her publishing as well. So there's nothing in the industry that I haven't done that I can think of. Tell me if you agree with this, with this concept or statement. It seems to me that there – is growing numbers of people that do not respect financially our job as as recording engineers or, or producers. And they're very like, oh, really? It's going to cost that much? Yeah, especially producing. Because, man, I tell you, I've done one couch producer gig in my whole career where I was just going to, I'm going to be the producer on the couch, you know, the Dickinson guy, or sitting at the console, just, I'm just producing. I'm not going to engineer it myself. I couldn't stand it, you know, um, not because the engineer I was working with wasn't perfectly competent, but when I have a thought, things are so second nature to me there that I can just reach and do stuff so quickly without having to describe what I'm doing or tell them what my chest move three moves down the road is going to be. I just know it and can do it, you know, so, but getting paid as just as a producer now, God, how many guys are doing that? I don't know. Other And then at the top, top of the, of the game, you know, the Rick Rubens and George Draculis of the world, those kind of guys. And there's a lot of them in Nashville. And it's funny because a lot in T-Bone Burnett, all those, those guys all have four or five projects going at once. They're getting paid. And it's just a matter of hitting that level where people start, I think, believing that if your name is associated with it as the producer, that's actually going to sell some records, even though there's no credits anywhere for anybody to look at. Yeah, you can hear a T-Bone Burnett record pretty quickly. Oh yeah, I'd at least have a good guess. That's him. So yeah, it's 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 hard, man. It is hard. Um, 
because people don't understand what we do. I, I think engine recording and mixing wise, they get it. You know, like wow, okay, so you've got all the knowledge to run to work all these machines, and if they've never been in a studio, like wow, how do you know what all these buttons do and that kind of thing? But I don't think most people, especially because the recording technology has gotten so cheap too. For a thousand bucks, anybody can go set up in their living room and make a recording of something. You know, whether they're doing it one at a time, it can sound like something. It and sometimes they can hit on it and sound, because of their naivety, I think it can sound really cool, you know, and they don't know what they're doing. I've also been the the producer and engineering wing chairman here in Memphis since uh, I just stepped down from that last year. But I had been doing that since they started, you know. So I was constantly doing events. The Memphis chapter is pretty spread out. Like, it includes Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and up as far as north as St. Louis. So it's very diverse regionally, but, you know, I started doing, actually, I, my friend Michael Romanowski, and uh, they started doing those listening nights for for his peenie thing, and I kind of, you know, borrowed that idea from him. We started doing it regionally, and it's it's so cool to go hang with your engineering buddies and everybody play what have you been working on and you have a few beers and eat some food and talk about what's going on in the in the industry, keeping up with the technology, those kind of things. I really enjoyed that too. So I've been pretty, I've been really active in the Naris world as well. So um, of course that doesn't pay anything, but uh, that can also educate people. You know, it's just a matter of educating people in a, in not a square way. You know, and I, there's a big initiative to in the Recording Academy that to let people know, especially young people, what's going on and. What's happening? I love Andrew Sheps. The way I met Andrew Sheps was I, I got him to come here for a PE Wing event and do his Lost in Translation. Mm. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. How cool is that, you know? And so he came to Memphis and did that. We were the second one that he did, I think. And we became fast friends. And, and uh, I learned that he's one of those guys you just sit down and talk to him and you, you learn so much. He's such a wealth of knowledge, you know? You should, I mean, if you haven't heard his. Uh my interview with him. Oh I my. did. I, that's the first one I checked out. Oh Vance, my God. I haven't heard Vance's yet, but I've heard Andrew's. It's great. I sent Andrew a, a, a thank you email later just to say, you know, that was really great. That was like, uh, going to the, the, the master on the mountaintop and coming back down or the rabbi or priest or whatever to the great sage. And I really yeah. enjoyed talking with him because he and Vance both, I mean, well, and you as well. I mean, all of you are making are making or have made records on a high level and have dealt in areas that seem mysterious to many of us who are still kind of down here. And to hear the truth being spoke about a lot of this stuff, it really demystifies a lot of it. That's good. And, I, you know, I, I love being able to share what I know. Um, I joke about myself and say sometimes you might ask me what time it is, and I might tell you how to build, try to tell you how to build a watch, you know. But <laughs> um, but I love going to these seminars and stuff and hanging out with you know my colleagues and, and you know the potluck thing. That's so great. And um, I'm doing a I'm doing a thing in uh, New Orleans uh, on April 29th where it's going to be a vinyl panel for the Academy and it's going to be like a one day recording summit thing. And Elliot Shiner is going to be the keynote speaker and we're going to have a mastering guy. We're going to have a guy from the plant. Uh, you know, it's going to be all about vinyl and, you know, it's as much about us guys, us engineers and producers getting together 
night sitting around the table telling horrible jokes and talking about technology and stuff too in the fellowship and ideas and what cool records have you been working on? What horror stories do you have? You know, I love hearing stories and telling stories from this crazy life that we've chosen, you know, it's, but it's, uh, again, I can't imagine doing anything else. I think I'm one of the luckiest guys in the, in the world. I go through phases of like, Oh, recording tracking is a pain in the ass. I'm going to focus on mixing. And then I start to miss the people and then, then I'm like, okay, let's get back into tracking. Yeah, it is. As, as intense as it can be, you know, I've, I've been doing this thing lately, getting quite a few people to do it, but it's a one day. The idea is you come in with your band. Again, you've got to have your shit together, but you can come in and one day we're going to record, overdub, and mix two songs. And I'm going to go cut your lacquers for a single all that night, and it's off 1200 bucks hmm. in Arden Studio A, you know? And so, you know, people thinking like, so many people like, gosh, I never thought I could come into Arden or I never thought I'd have enough money to work with you. It's like, no, just ask. It's not, you can put that on a credit card, you know, and you can walk out with what you need to do. You'll still have to pay to manufacture it, but you'll have digital files for a digital single and you'll have master lacquers to go plate up and press. That's a really reasonable price, I think, you know, for one day. And the cool thing aesthetically from that is, you know this, man. When you record a track and you've got a band and they come in and you listen to that first playback and everybody's like, wow, you know, when you get that wow moment mm-hmm. and then you move on and maybe you're tracking however many songs for an album, but you'll, I don't care if you take a snapshot of the faders and they all pop back where they were, if you recall the board, that where everything is that day, it never comes back, that that, that where moment happened to be. So when we do this, what we do is we... Largely, or like, if, if we have that moment, I'll mess with it. Just But they come back and listen to what we've got working on the board. And if everybody's cool, we may do a vocal overdub. Or we may touch up this or that. But where the faders are, we'll just put our hands on the faders and we just mix it there before we do another thing. Then we go record the next song. You know, so you're you're actually recording to mix right there on the spot. And it's the results are cool. It's kind of like what Glenn was doing, you know, uh, in, a, in a weird way, just pop them up and where they are, that's the moment in time instead of sitting there toiling over um, lining up that bass with the kick drum by the picture just right, you know, or whatever it may be. But again, if it's some horrible band, I mean, I haven't, it's all been cool so far, you know, where people knew what to expect and they come in and knock it out. How do you deal with, like, to me, the bands I work with nowadays, they are just fully, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big Pro Tools user. I'm, I, I haven't used tape in a long, long time, and I'm and I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine with is uh, bands that don't want to have those character flaws left. They're just like, oh, can you airbrush me out here and cut me and paste me here? And you know, I'm all for saving a great take with you know a big clam in the middle. But yeah, I understand. But you know that that fine level of of minutia of cutting and pasting everything i just kind of get over that and sometimes i just want to go no i don't want to do yeah, that i do say no a lot you know and it's like i'm not going to sit there and argue with you to keep a mistake or something that's going to keep you awake at night but i bet you a million dollars if you just let it go because uh, it's i tell you if we're going to start down that rabbit hole there's 50 other i'll make a list there's 50 things that we can make just right but I don't get a lot of those kind of acts, you know, I guess that 
bands that work with me know how organic that I am, and I don't I don't even use plugins really. I'm way behind on that, but I might use a de-esser or something here and there. But my my basic setup when I mix, man, is we've got three beautiful sounding EMT plates. I usually, if somebody else is usually using one of them, but I use two of those, and we have two live echo chambers and a tape slap, a real tape slap machine. That's my effects as far as verb and stuff goes. I don't use any digital reverbs. And again, I'm not saying that if I'm in a pinch or I got to have something or some special effect they want, I will, but I, I just don't have to most of the time. So that's the kind of record I'm working on stuff that's very organic like that anyway. So, um, you know, and I don't use L2 on my rough mixes. You know, I tell them this is going to be way lower, so don't freak out. <laughs> that's probably the only place where I get into where people are freaking out, freaking out. They're like, well, it sounds weak, you know, and you're like, don't worry. Hold on a minute. I'm like, Lucas, let's slap some L2 on this. And they're like, oh, God, okay. Right, right. You know? Again, it's the loudness, the loudness wars. But uh, and also the mastering guy, that guy that I use, um, he knows I, I haven't used a bus compressor in seven or eight years, even. Now that just changed because um, shameless plug here. I I got a Spectrosonics M610, and I'm using it on the bus. Man. <laughs> It knocks some of these peaks out where I don't really have to use a lot of. You can't hear the compression at all. It's it's a. I'm still learning how to use it a little bit because it's it's not real intuitive how it's lined up. But man, it sounds great. And the story quickly a story that the way Arden got started was John Fry saw that Stax had a Spectrosonics console and he figured, well, if I get one just like Stax has. When they get too busy, maybe we'll get some of their overflow, which is exactly what happened. So the whole Spectrosonics line, there was an old console that I guess he, I don't know where the hell he kept it. It was in a warehouse or something. And when the Stax Museum opened, they just had some bullshit console in there, and it drove Fry crazy. Because he's like, that's not what they had in there. So he got out the old Spectrosonics console. Our tech took out the, the Mike Pre's and the EQ's. So they gutted all the cool electronics out of it, but that's that's what's at the Stax Museum, an actual Spectrosonics console. And we all started using those. And then once again, I'm like, how did I ever go without this? How did this has been where, you know, so we, that's one of the things we all, we've got them racked up in a, an eight box. And then there's a couple of two of stereo boxes. And if you haven't heard them, man, they're hmm. crazy good. I haven't. It's, it's like, got to have that for drums. If they're booked, I'll book my time around. I, I literally do book my time around equipment now because <laughs> my needs are so minimal. They're, you know, it's like if somebody else is using EMT number three, then, you know, that's not negotiable for me. So if I can't have it, then let me know when it's available and I'll book my time around that. You know, it's different working styles. And I don't know if there's really uh, not much debate or, or discussion to have around it other than to say it's just how everybody works but or, or a different style of working. But... A lot of a lot of people that I've spoken with uh, are surprised that Andrew Sheps, with his two Neves, is m- doing mixing in the box. Well, I went to Andrew's house a couple, was a couple of years ago. Went by to to hang with him and see his studio, and he had just come out with that sound on sound interview. I don't know where he's standing in front of his wall of gear and stuff and talking all about it. So we go out to the studio and we're hanging out for a second, and 
I'm in awe, you know, like, what's that do? Wow, you got one of those. Oh, God, I haven't seen that in years. And he's like, well, I'm glad you're sitting down because I got to tell you something. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> he goes, I'm I'm almost totally mixing in the box now. And I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, man. And then he explained why. And it makes perfect sense for his situation because he's, you know, again, he's working on these these high incline. Like he described, you know, he's in a, in a cafe in France with headphones on mixing Beyonce on his laptop. I've already asked him, like, what would you what would you rent one of those consoles out for for a year? You know, maybe we should drag one of those to Memphis and put it up in a warehouse somewhere, or something like that. You know, but. If you're working on multiple, the thing, Pro Tools comes right back where you left off, you know. I still use an assistant, and he has to dial the board back in, to where, and he's awesome at it. Um, but I, that's another thing, you know, that seems to be going away, sadly. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I know anybody in Memphis other than me that's really using an assistant full-time. And that's where I, that's where, that was my leap, was because I, I kind of came along with Studio A when they put the Neve VR in there. I had to learn that. They threw me in there with a the band and learned the board. Tom Dowd's coming with Leonard Skinner in three weeks, you know. And so I had to learn that console forwards and backwards. And then the first pro- Dowd bought Almond Brothers and the, the Leonard Skinner and took a week off. And then the Almond Brothers were there. So I was in that room in the, in, for months, you know, because Dowd was challenging me on how some old school ways of doing stuff that. Joe, John Hampton and Joe Hardy, who were who I really came up under, they were staff guys at Arden, you know. And I learned real quick, like, well, that's not how they do it. There's nothing worse than an assistant. He says, well, that's not how they do it. So I just kept my eyes and ears open, and Tom showed me so much, and he took a he took a liking to me. And after the Almond Brothers record, he was putting me in the engineer chair. I did four more records with him. So wow, that's. You know, you've had you some incredible experiences. Yeah, and so, but all these different engineers and producers would come through the room, and I was still when I was assisting. I was like, I came with the room, so I got to see all these different ways of working, and um, I kind of took it all in and did my own thing. Kept the cool things I, I learned from people and some of the other stuff. I was like, geez, what a jerk that guy is. I'm not going to be that, and I, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so getting yelled at. Not fun. No, I've only had a few of those, and I quit one gig. There was—I won't mention his name—but uh, shoot, I'd been in, at Ardent for probably three years by then. And there was, you know, back then too, you you worked with a band for two and a half, three months if it was major label. You became friends with them, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was this band on Geffen, and it brought in this big name producer, and it was time to mix it. It was the mixer that they brought in. He came to Arden. He was an L.A. guy, man, and he did. He just started giving us the whole, you know, what are you, a bunch of hillbillies down here? All southern people are stupid. And wow. Blah, blah, blah. You know, just really arrogant. And I was still in school at the time, so I remember getting done with finals, and I came over there. We were eating lunch across the street, getting ready to start for the day, and I sit down at the table, and I go, man, I just finished finals. There is not a better feeling in the world getting done with finals, man. He goes, you're going to school? And I said, yeah, man, I, I told you I'm going to school. He goes, for what? And I said, for recording engineering. He goes, that's a scary thought. And, you know, it's one of those where I was smi- I just kind of wipes the smile off the face. and like, what do, you, what do you mean by that, man? He goes, well, you're basically you're slow, you're lazy, and you don't want to learn anything. And Whoa. Man, I'm a, the most 
passive dude. I mean, I don't get, I don't lose my temper very often, but man, my face got red and I stuff go, you know what, man? Fuck you. <laughs> he said, what? I said, fuck you. Shove it up your ass, man. You don't, you know, if you, if I thought I had anything to learn, this guy had made me the day before he wanted the big deal was he wanted the, the NS 10s. He kept blowing them up. We had them fused and he kept blowing the fuses. He said, go back to your tech and tell him to put bigger fuses in here. So I go back to the tech and I go, he wants to use bigger fuses. He goes, no, because we're not going to replace the tweeters every five minutes. Tell him to turn it down to a reasonable level. It's that's We're not going to do that. And I'm not going to sit here and replace tweeters all day. So I go and I said, they said, no, I'm sorry. They're, this is the deal. He goes, well, guess what you get to do then? So I had to stand behind the console all day with a box of fuses as he would blow them while he's making a pass, just screaming at me, hurry up, change it, you know, and I was kicking them out like the floor was covered with them by the end of the night, you know, and uh, that's fucking ridiculous, man. So that's what I'd had to deal with the whole day before. So, man, when he said that, I just said, man, fuck you. And then, of course, the band was friends with me by then. And they were like, we want to fire this guy. And I go, don't fire him over the fact I'm just the assistant, man. He's a famous mixer guy. Get it. Get the work done. I'll be fine. But I'm not going back in there. And then the producer starts calling me. You need to come back in. He's going to apologize to you. Um, I had a talk with him. I, I'm like, no. I don't have any integrity at this point of the game. I'm never going to have any. So I'm telling you, I'm not coming back in there. If Arden wants to fire me for that, you know, and they, they had my back, you know, and they were like, that's fine, man. Screw this dude. We'll get somebody else in there. Stay home. He go, and the next day, the producer goes, you've got to go in at least talk to him. And I said, all right, I'm not afraid of him. I'll go talk to him. So he, I go in there. Here was his apology. He turns around in his chair. He goes, hey, man, sorry I said that if you got your feelings hurt yesterday, but uh, you're really being a big pussy about this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and man, I wanted to kill him. I was like, I will kill you. <laughs> I just stayed calm. I was like, yeah, you know, actually – I got to tell you, now that I'm off the session, I mean, I, I think your mixes sound horrible, and um, all you're doing is just playing it loud to mask the fact that you can't hear anything. So whatever, man, I, I'm i not coming back to work for you. And he's like, you really ought to come back because you have a lot you could learn from me. And uh, no. So we basically sat there and kind of quietly insulted each other for a while, and I said, I'll see you later, and that was the end of that. What year was that? It would have been 93 or 94, maybe. Man. Yeah, so... Was he uh, was he older than you or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't know. What, he's not around. Good. It wasn't some stalwart superstar guy. He he. Uh, I don't know what happened to him. But treating people like that, you know, I can only imagine. L.A. guy coming to the South that act like that. I remember him going ardent the studio that sounds like a toothpaste or something like that. <laughs> he wanted a ping pong table that they didn't get for him and just. He would come out in the hallway and scream at people like, I'm trying to mix a record in here and you people are out here talking. It's like, I mean, they're double air sealed doors. I mean, it just shit like that. And just, it was bad. But that's really about the only, one of the only few times I ever said enough, man. I'm not, I'm not, you don't have to talk to me like that, man. So w would that be a piece of advice you'd give to the, the younger listener? Have some integrity and don't let people yell at you? It depends, man, because... I know some other guys that are very successful that this, you just have to, they've just had to take it. I think there's a certain amount of hazing that some engineers think we'll see who can, who can take the hazing or not, you know? So I wouldn't say just blanketly come in there like, I, I'm not a yeller. I never yelled at an assistant ever. I mean, even in the most frustrating 
situations, I'll, I'll sit them down at, at the end of the night and talk to them if I'm having a real problem with them or tell them, you know, can you get somebody in here to help, help you when you don't know something or the main problem that assistants get into is when they don't know what they don't know what you ask them to do and they try to do something else and they screw it up worse because they were embarrassed to say, I don't know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have time to explain it. I'll usually, if I'm frustrated, I'll just jump up and do it. So I'll say, we'll talk about it at the end of the night and I'll explain this to you why I'm doing it, where I'm doing it. Da, 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 da. So I've had a lot of, a lot of the young guys come up. I've had a lot of great assistants come up under me that are active engineers today that, and that makes me feel really good. Not that they didn't just learn from me, but they, I gave them what I knew and, uh, they took it on themselves to go do their own thing and they're doing well. So, well, super cool, Jeff. This is, I could talk to you all fucking day, but I know we, you too. Man. I got to edit this thing together. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, lot of good information. Well, cool. Thanks so much for, uh, including me I, again. Yeah. Are you going to go to potluck this year? Oh yeah. And, uh, well, you know, I think I, we're going, so we'll have a beer or something, man. Oh, yeah, most definitely. The El Conquistador. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Hottest week of the year in Tucson. I know. Oh, I, <laughs> I love going, though. It's just... It is. It's about. It's so much more about even seeing all you got, you know, seeing all our colleagues and hanging and having a good time than anything, so... Well, I I, Vance will be there. Andrew will probably be there, so... Oh, yeah. I will. I will definitely uh, see you there, so... Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt. Well, great to meet you. I will see you in you Tucson. Too. And uh, thanks again. Appreciate thank you, it. man. You have a great day. All right. You too. Talk to you soon. Holy moly. What a great interview. What a great guy. Such good information. I could talk to Jeff all day long. He's got, he's got story after story. And, you know, at some point we got to, I mean, we got to cut it down. So that's the, uh, I, I could have you, I could have all of you here all day, which of course, you know, you'd never get anything done between Facebook and this podcast. You know, we could, we could just eat up all your time. All right. So, uh, I can say this now I'll be here next week and I hope you, uh, have enjoyed this. And, uh, of course, if you're new to the podcast, go back in time and start checking out some of the other podcasts that, that we've done. You know, initially, if you're new, we used to do two a month. We now do once a week and yeah, what a boatload of information to, uh, hand out. So that's it. I'll check you all next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.